Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This has been my home for 10 years. Every day I train to be as good a martial artist as my father. I am a man now and it's time I went home. I need to discover who I am, what it is I should do, and what happened to my father. This episode of Motherfuck Lore is brought to you by the show's generous supporters on Patreon. Supporters like Maho Rivas and Kylie McMahon. Mila Brikas, Maho and Kylie. This is our last episode of this season. We'll be back, we expect, in August or September, more likely September. However, we will be releasing Patreon-only episodes, probably fortnightly throughout the summer. So, if you don't want to miss out on the motherfucker madness, check out patreon.com forward slash dark. And now, the show. Hugh Carr here. Thank you so, so much for asking me to talk about Fatal Deviation on this episode. It is, honest to God, one of my favorite films of all time. So Fatal Deviation, I think I found it through Twitter is where I discovered it first. Uh, I think it might have been someone sharing the picture of Mikey Graham cutting the cocaine with the Dunn's store gift card, (laughs) which that sentence in itself is just incredible. I think that's where it first, like, burrowed itself into my brain. And I'm a huge fan of terrible films like a really really big fan of terrible films i love them so so much they make me so happy so and when i heard that there was an irish language martial arts film which was of that same vibe i knew that i had to watch it so i think i was in my final year of college and i was really good friends with the film society and we decided that one day we would watch fatal deviation and it honest to god changed my life i think i have watched that scene of the naked cowboy running out of the bathtub i would say about a hundred times and we would rewind it and we would put different soundtracks with it we put we slowed the film down if you slow that scene down to like half speed or like maybe even quarter speed and you put the inception soundtrack over it it is transcendental it is unbelievable because like Obviously not every film that has come out of Ireland has been a home run. I think we're all aware of that. But no film has been so, so bad and yet so, so funny. And, you know, the fact that we're still talking about it 22 years later is just a sign of how incredible it is. I don't think anything there. I don't think that there's anything like Fatal Deviation 
that's come out of Ireland and I don't think that there ever will be again. Stuff Podcast Network. Welcome to Mother Folklore. Podcasts are words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. I am Dara Cochet. If you're a regular listener to the show, or if you follow me on Twitter, you'll know that I am maybe fan is too strong a word, but I am very interested in a, a piece of Irish cinematic history, a 1998 martial arts movie set filmed in Meath called Fatal Deviation. Why am I so obsessed with this film? A million reasons. It It's hard to actually begin because it, it touches on so many areas that I'm interested in. And as, as a piece of storytelling, as an artifact of, I guess, of a, created by a loophole of Irish tax laws around filmmaking, as a, as, as a piece of, of, of work, as a, um, as a testament to human achievement in spite <laughs> of, of what you can achieve in spite of um, a, you know, a, a lack of vision or, or, or with a total lack of vision. It's, or it's, it's, just, it's, it's phenomenal work. Once you see it, people, people who see it generally find, and they meet someone else who's seen it, they talk about it. It's just one of these things that's unifying. And we are interested in the overlap between um, mythology, storytelling, and the action movie, and how these things are interlinked. And my guest today is a woman in America who creates a podcast about this very thing, the, the link between action movies, mythology, and storytelling, specifically with reference to the John Wick movies. Be Seeing You is an excellent thought-provoking and entirely entertaining podcast, which I highly recommend. And its host is Mira Adama. Hello, hello. Hey, getting on. Good. Very, I mean, now that you've been so flattering, getting on very well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm delighted to hear it. So we'll start off by talking about um, your, your podcast, Be Seeing You. You look at the, the John Wick mm-hmm. movies and specifically... Um, John Wick movies in particular, but you, from there you look at maybe Keanu Reeves' larger career and how in some yeah. ways that the John Wick movies, they capture a lot of the tropes that have been covered in his career. It, it seems so strange that he started off as um, how he gradually became this kind of um, this action movie maestro, this connoisseur of action. And it, it, this wasn't did not seem likely from his early stints in yeah. Bill and Ted and in <laughs> Parenthood. And yet those films, it seems that the Bill and Ted legacy is a huge part of why he's been such an effective action hero. He has this puppy dog vulnerability. Yeah, you, It matters if he gets hurt in a way that it doesn't matter if Steven Seagal gets hurt. Yeah, I think, um, so IMDb has their awful trivia section. Mm-hmm. And uh, they usually ask what an actor is known for in it. And apparently what they list um, as the thing that Keanu Reeves is known for is having like a very like intense and dramatic gaze, uh, which I think is accurate. And also I think it's why he ended up being so good at action. Part of Keanu's vulnerability mm-hmm. is that he's able to show it just through his eyes. And that's immensely important with something like John Wick or... I would argue with all action movies and going back to, you know, samurai films with Kurosawa, which was just him putting more heart and spirituality into the American Western, essentially. What mm. becomes important in those things is the ability for someone to do acting while they're doing fight choreography. Yes. Um, and I think that that can get lost a lot in 
in sort of movies that are just violent, like heck yeah, man time, you know, mm-hmm. you kind of, you, you lose the heart of that. And I don't think Keanu knows how to not actually be in character and engaging when he's doing those scenes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that's it, his, his, his ability to be a very empathetic and open actor is actually what makes him great as action, which I find really interesting. Cause I think a lot of people assume that action mm-hmm. by default is a little bit heartless. And I don't think it is at all. It isn't. This is one of the really interesting things, I suppose, that that that, that comes up that that comes up in today's topic of Fatal Deviation and some of the other um, action movies in in Keanu's oeuvre and in the also in the martial arts oeuvre is this overlap between dance stories and dance storytelling and action storytelling and how the the the, the similarities between a, a film like an action movie like Enter the Dragon and a dance movie mm-hmm. like Dirty Dancing are yes. astonishing when you see them this idea of um of a, a, a naive person get finding a mentor and then training for a basically a Cinderella meets a fairy godmother and then prepares for going to the ball. Yeah, Except you know, the- it's with Dirty Dancing, um, you know, obviously Patrick Swayze is in that. And I'm actually, mm-hmm. a, I'm from the part of the Carolinas. It's very li- near Lake Lure, which Ooh. is where most of Dirty Dancing was filmed. Um, and I actually, um, as a teenager, got in trouble for stealing a boat. With a few, we returned it. We more borrowed it is the terminology <laughs> that I would prefer. Yeah. Uh, but we stole a boat to go to like the ruins of the dance hall from Dirty Dancing and to pull stones out of what was left of the building. And we found a turtle there and attempted to take it back to camp. And we named it Swayze and we tried to keep it, which wow. that in and of itself sounds like the beginning to a martial arts film, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. But, um, but the thing with Patrick Swayze is, you know, he's also in, uh, he's also in Point Break which mm-hmm. is another Keanu film and an early Keanu action film. And um, I talk about Point Break fairly often, just being in some way, even when I was, you know, covering professional wrestling as I did, um, because Point Break is a very emotional movie. It's almost yeah. a love story. And, you know, this, it's kind of the joke in the film, like Hot Fuzz. They reference Point Break all the time, and it becomes this, like, metaphor for, for their friendship. But I, I bring up Patrick Swayze and Point Break and Dirty Dancing a lot because it's... Uh, it manages, it's still very much an American film, but it's directed mm-hmm. by a woman. Yes. And it removes sort of that like toxic male gaze that dominates a lot of, you know, every few months blockbuster action. So yeah. Patrick, Patrick Swayze is another person that just like, like embodied that. And his mother was a ballet dancer and he was a trained dancer. So it was probably mm-hmm. an easy, easy thing to jump into surf karate. It's it, 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 it is it's an extraordinary thing, and, and then, and I know say that one of the things is in the late nineties something started happening in in Hollywood, which is what we started seeing right before the handover of Hong Kong. You found a lot of martial arts choreographers um, and and personnel from the Hollywood from the Hong Kong uh, film industry started either moving to Hollywood or moving to Australia or moving around. And this this um, this talent, I suppose, had a had a ripple effect in in American action movies. The Matrix being the most obvious one. Mm-hmm. The start of the ball rolling. Then obviously John Woo as well. And I think Hard Target actually was made before the Hong Kong handover. But whereas I guess so much of the martial arts started one of one of the most successful foreign cinemas in the American box office. Would it be fair to say? I would say so. Yeah, I think because if you look at our, um, I mean the biggest action franchise in the world right now is the Fast and Furious series. Mm -hmm. Um, And the Fast and Furious is, 
uh, I actually ex- explain it to people as it's point break, but someone put cars in it to stand as a symbol for saying no homo. <laughs> so they don't yeah. have to. It's mm-hmm. a less emotional point break because every time there's a moment where you're like, wait a minute, are they in love? Seven mm-hmm. cars fall from the sky and you don't have to think of it. And that's like, that's a perfect example of these um, very Western ideals. And I mean that in like Western of the hemisphere, but also the genre of Western mm-hmm. still existing in action movies today, but having such a big global pool and a seemingly... Um, like an outside source that like there's no named deity in Fast and the Furious, which is an insane sentence to say, but there, there is an idea that like globally, spiritually, the concept of family is this bigger concept that motivates them. So it's like, it's an insane series and it's almost about nothing, but it is a really good representation of, you know, those, those two worldviews and films sort of holding hands and connecting to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. For a lot of different reasons, definitely, and that's that's it. And it, 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 it's the, it, there's so much. It, a lot of people who you wouldn't expect to be fans of the Fast and Furious series are. It's connected with a lot of people who aren't maybe in a traditional action moment because yeah. it's largely guys talking about their feelings as they're driving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's it, yeah, same way that people think that people they think cynics would say that people like love island because it's just a lot of you know kind of attractive people in sw- swimwear just mm-hmm. wandering around but really what they didn't what they keep people keep missing is it's an hour of young people talking about their feelings yeah and the, i i this the i guess the winter love island was the first one i'd ever watched because mm-hmm. they put it on hulu now for us even though we're like a week behind it's the first one i'd ever watched and i actually had like a few moments where like when it's just the men talking to each other at a few like it was so funny to me to see this like <laughs> microcosm of people that um, probably I'm not ever going to hang out with them, uh, someone in their like demographic or whatever, but they, just like uplifting each other and being very vulnerable about their insecurities, like mm-hmm. while they're changing into like their night swim trunks. And it, I, fa- <laughs> I found it like so incredibly endearing. And I was like, no, this is great, though, because mm-hmm. if these broy men who I would never interact with, like are seeing other broy men be nice to each other. I, I saw someone recently talk about um, Jersey Shore, actually, yeah. in that context of being another thing where men were very close with one another and emotional with each other. And there was still obviously some like toxic young boy stuff of yeah. the 2000s and 2010s or whatever. But that it was for some men who enjoyed Jersey Shore, they probably didn't realize it. What they liked about it is that they were seeing a very tender portrayal of, of male friendship. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's hysterical and so there's all these themes that are actually lurking between, behind action movies this idea is this, uh, how close they are to dance movies and then one of the things about in, in Hong Kong is this idea that colonialism was 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 actually always a theme in early martial arts movies yeah. something that, that Bruce Lee was um, there's a moment when Irish people are very, are very familiar and take a kind of a, a weird kind of um, a bitterly triumphant pride in the old signs that say you know uh, no dogs no Irish and yeah. In in Fist of Fury, um, Bruce Lee sees it is, po- is pointed to a sign saying, "You know, no dogs, no Chinese," and yeah. he <laughs> jumps and he he just a massive drop kick and destroys the sign. You were wanting to get in here? No, 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 no. Tell you what, there's only one thing you need to do: pretend you're a dog, and I'll take you in. <laughs> Mm. 
martial arts movies did emerge from in a kind of a strange colonial conversation in a strange play part of where the Cold War was um, took on a, a, an unusual form. They, they were poli- they were political without being explicitly political. There was always these mm-hmm. um, there's there always these undercurrents going on, and I wonder how much of this was noticed by a young man in Meath <laughs> growing up in in 1980s and <laughs> yes. 1990s Ireland. Yeah. Do you know, I actually, um, uh, two, two points on that, if I may, mm. um, with Bruce Lee. So his school of martial arts is Jeet Kundu, which, mm. or, you know, means to like receive, receiving the fist yes. rather than blocking it, which I think lends itself to, um, more discipline and more catharsis in the martial arts itself. And also lends itself to fight choreography very naturally. If what you're doing is preparing for a movement, rather than being on the offense or defense. Um, and early Jeet Kune Do studios um, in the United States, and actually the few places that you will find Jeet Kune Do studios near the rural South, um, are usually in areas that actually had a large black population and a large immigrant population. So like very mm-hmm. early on, the Jeet Kune Do studios became places for immigrants and for people of color and like just women who wanted to train of any race usually weren't welcomed in other martial arts areas. So Jeet Kune Do in that way, even before Bruce Lee was making films, was inherently political because mm-hmm. it had to be like the art form that Bruce Lee created in and of itself had to be a different kind of anti-colonialism even mm-hmm. before he stepped into film. Um and then, and then talking about fatal deviation and like what that might have done and how he might have been inspired by that. So, a note that I made when I was watching the movie again—I've seen it like five times now—and <laughs> I'm probably going to watch it. it. Once. I'm probably yeah. going to watch it again after we talk about it. <laughs> um, so, Seventh Samurai is one of my favorite films. Yeah. Um, has been always. Kurosawa is amazing, and it's one of the only martial arts film and one of the only foreign language films that both um, like. AFI, the American Film Institute, and then BBC's film have them in their like top 100 movies. It's one of the only foreign ones and one of the only action ones that makes it in. Mm. And uh, so something that I thought about, um, there's a character in uh, Seven Samurai. He's like the the fool, I guess, if you will, if we're to look at that trope in yeah. both Westerns. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a Kikyocho, I think, but he is a, a, a he's a farmer's son which is part of why he's treated like he's dumb. It's yeah. a little bit of classism there. But of course, Seven Samurai goes over um, after this point of time is that because he exists as both a samurai and the son of a farmer, and in this journey, he falls in love with someone, what he is able to do is he's essentially able to unite the working class. Because the villagers, who because of the way they were treated by samurai under imperial rule, Usually when they find a single samurai, they would kill them. But he's able to unite them by going, I'm a farmer's son and I'm a samurai. We're not here under imperial rule. We've both hurt each other. But, you know, the common enemy is is bigger than us. And Mm -hmm. I, I thought about that. Like, I almost wish that he knew. I wish the character Bennett had deliberately been created as a fool trope. Yeah. In martial arts, because I think that almost accidentally it does that path. 
yeah. but then it never quite hits it. But it's so close to having that like really great trope that lends itself to critiquing imperialism and colonialism, even when you couldn't really get away with that in film. What am I going to do? Well, what am I going to do? You must win the tournament. I can't. They have Nicola. If you win the tournament, you'll break their power. But what about Nicola? Don't worry, we'll get her back. Hi folks, it's Miss Shakira. I am a massive fan of Ireland's first full-length MMA film, which is, of course, set in Trim, uh, the one and only Fatal Deviation. I think I watched it first on account of ye yourselves mentioning it before on the podcast, and it just sounded so funny. Um, nowadays, I recommend it at, honestly, every opportunity to anyone I meet, but I definitely have to warn them of, like, you know, it's it's not just any film. You have to be in the mood for a bit of a shite night. Um, in the film itself, I think there's so many iconic bits. Now, iconic might be a strong word. Like, I think gas is more the word I'm looking for here. Um, but I think it's also such a quotable film, but it's such a niche as well that when I tend to quote it, it's rare that anyone actually cops them quoting it. And they're like, what? <laughs> I don't know what you're on about there. And um, I think starting off, I think even just the opening credits, when Mikey Graham is mentioned as a member of rock group Boyzone, um, I think this alone kind of sets the tone and expectations of the film to come. Um, I think the owl lad, Lachlan, he's definitely my favourite character and I think he's so quotable as well on account of his killer lines and also his woeful delivery, God love him. Um, I mean, at one stage uh, when he's doing the flower arranging and just using it as a prop and then he kind of does these like ta-da hands to himself and then launches into, again, his iconic line. Um, although after Lachlan, a very close second for my car- favourite character would be the random lad who gets into the outside bath and then just goes off legging it in the nip when he hears gunshots or an explosion. Um, like there's absolutely no reason to make him, to have him making an appearance in the film other than to have some naked man running through a random yard and trim. But I mean, I'm kind of here for it at the same time. Uh, finally, I think the absolute icing on the cake in Fatal Deviation is including a blooper reel at the end of the film as if enough bloopers didn't make it into the final cut anyway. I mean, case in point, having a misspelling on the note which threatens uh, Bennett before the tournament, which says loose or else. So L-O-O-S-E um, instead of lose. I think that's one that I actually missed the first time around. I, see, I saw the film and then was like, oh, wow, that's that's incredible. And anyway, I'm so excited to hear your thoughts and observations on a tournament run by Monks and Trim, which, of course, is the best way to celebrate Falconer. She's body and soul. She's the fire and the rain. Another interesting Bruce Lee point about Bruce Lee's kind of language barrier and things like that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar at all, and I swear that this is this has such a tie-in spiritually to Fatal Deviation for me that when I rewatched Fatal Deviation last week, I also started rewatching this show. But I don't know if you're familiar with the show's Kung Fu and Kung Fu The Legend Continues. Oh yes. Yeah. So I don't know if you know this, but those were that was Bruce Lee's show. 
That was Bruce Lee's idea. It was his concept. He took it to a studio. He took it to producers. They told him that they were on board and that they loved the idea. But he didn't lock in rights to those ideas before he shared them. Oh. So that entire concept are really like major introduction to tropes that you see start to happen. You know, you see them even in um, The Karate Kid. You see them in Highlander. It's this idea of regardless of your age, this very bizarre, like, coming of age via, you know, kind of having a, a master to put you in place. But it's it's very much about growing up and becoming yourself. Mm-hmm. That combined with, like, somewhat ridiculous elements that you didn't really see in film or even television with martial arts before that, the elements of, like, time travel and a martial arts priest, things mm-hmm. like that, those are Bruce Lee's invention. And it's it's sort of funny because uh, to Fatal Deviation's credit, it absolutely embraces those like chaotic elements that don't necessarily seem like they go together Mm -hmm. Um, to the point that I like I genuinely had to sit down and I was like, I need to rewatch like I rewatched the first episode of the original Kung Fu and of Kung Fu Legend Continues because it's that same element of chaos. And of course, every time I do that, I'd get sad, though, because I'm like, this was Bruce Lee's idea. And how much better would it have been? if they'd have let him do it instead of assuming that um, American audiences and in general white audiences just like wouldn't have gone with him on that trip. (laughs) This is, this is something I suppose that that there's a fascinating point about Kung Fu and, and the, the, the the coming of age, the becoming, the, the becoming process. Now, you know, I guess a a protagonist is, is, is starts life as an incomplete self and becomes there through training and through some some sort of trauma and with the assistance of, as you say, a kind of a, a priest figure becomes this, becomes who they really are. And it's something that's very present in Fatal Deviation. It is something that is present in Irish mythology. Yes. It is something, it is a Fatal Deviation connects the triangle between Irish mythology and I guess what, what how I guess martial, martial arts have introduced concepts of Eastern philosophy to that and this is something that 30 30 odd years before fatal deviation there was there are poets in cork them the inti poets in cork were writing in irish basically were taking their their inspiration for an irish poetry from eastern philosophies it may seem strange in one sense for an underground kung fu tournament to be taking place in County Meath of all places. But Irish, and in particular Irish language literature, it has undergone some, you know, not insignificant influence from Asian culture. Um, I think the works of the likes of Basho, the Japanese haiku poet, have long been an influence for uh, Irish poets, uh, in particular the likes of Newland O'Connell, Cahalo Sharkey and uh, Gabriel Rosenstock. In, in fact, Japanese in particular, but also Chinese and Tibetan influences can really be felt in the poets of the, the Inti generation. Um, this was the poetic movement established in 1970. Um drawing from the likes of Sean O'Riordan and Sean O'Tuma, but playing around with this post-Christian reality that Ireland found itself in and exploring the influence of Buddhist spirituality um, through a sort of a shared Indo-European route 
um, and how that kind of you know, made itself felt in Irish language and Irish literature. Um, Gabriel Rosenstock is one of the most prolific writers of haiku. Uh, and uh, I think some of his work is absolutely astounding. Uh, when I was in college, I was translating a lot of Basho's haiku into Irish. And uh, as a verse form, it really lends itself. The syllabic meter um, throws right back to the, the Gaelic poetic traditions that, you know, you'd have strict measures as to how many syllables could be in each line. So I found that sort of, that synergy really interesting. And, and I think no discussion of the Asian influence uh, on Irish language and Irish literature um, could exclude Michael Hartnett, who was born in Croom in County Limerick. And Hartnett famously swore off English he renounced writing in English in 1975. He declared that henceforth he would only write in Irish to court the language of my people. But he couldn't suppress the foreign tongue forever. And in 1985, uh, he released a long sequence of poetry uh, called Inchicor Haiku, uh, in which he wrote, My English dam bursts and outstroll all my bastards. Irish shakes its head. That's something with Fatal Deviation that I kind of, uh, I almost wish he would have leaned in more mm-hmm. to um, to having his monk priest there. Because there was like, there was such an opportunity there to pull in a lot of elements of Irish mythology. Or um, something I thought about, I don't know if you've seen the television show Britannia. I don't, I never finished it. And I don't know that I would say that it was a good show. <laughs> I, I, I saw the ads for it. I didn't but see they, it. Um, they have druids on the show. But what they decide to do in the show is they go, everything that we've ever read about druids, it's true. And they lean into it on the show. Hmm. So you have a somewhat, I uh, guess, Game of Throny like uh, sort of political issues in the show. Okay. But then everyone is genuinely fucking terrified of the druids. <laughs> like they're <laughs> genuinely scared of the druids. Um, and they like they just go through and they're just like like a man appears out of a tree and curses someone. Or at one point, I think there's an implication that someone's eating flesh. And so for me, it was sort of. Uh, you know, obviously more positively because he's using a, his a karate priest monk as a positive influence in the film. But I was sort of just like that, like that could have been a, like very op- a big opportunity there if you're doing Irish storytelling of a martial arts film, and it is regarded as sort of like Ireland's only martial arts film is how someone told me to watch this movie. <laughs> it's a, uh, I think it's a bummer that he didn't kind of lean into it more. Or for me, it's like. At a certain point, it's like summon Ku Cullen. Like, what are we, what are we doing? Go big or go home. You know, yeah. there's such a, such a rich, uh, like opportunity there. And I remember when the priest monk appeared, I was like, first of all, this is ridiculous, and I love it. But mm. two, I was like, I wonder how, like, how Irish this is gonna get. And then it didn't. He really served the same purpose as like a Mr. Miyagi but nothing extra. And I remember like when I first initially saw him, being like excited that there might be more Irish mythological elements than there were. Yeah, and this is this is something I felt that um, so much, and we all know Fatal Deviation has certain, I don't, I don't want to alarm here, certain fa- f- uh, shortcomings as a film. <laughs> <I don't> know, <laughs> some it's, shortcomings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and one of which is, I think possibly that there's a, there's a, there's a few moments in the script where, you know, there's, they, they tease you with, the prospect of what a better film it could have been. The fact that he starts off 
film, like in coming from the late nineties in Ireland, after all these clerical abuse scandals, he is a, first seen as in a reform school or an industrial school that he's leaving. We don't know what happened to him there. Yeah, and it's just this kind of this idea is waved at. It. It's, it's, just, it's almost like he's just oh, it's the last day he's leaving. Is it like this? And you know, these these places would have been you know horrible, horrible places, and the, the trauma of that. And then he just he effectively just kind of goes back to this house and he starts renovating and then he starts engaging with these these local these these small town these the small town big shots kind of are like who like get in his way. But then and between that and the fact also he here he is in Meath with these monks, Meath the one of the one of the most mysterious and mythologically um a, a county we have with, with with so much like mythological I guess richness in its in its history and in, in the in the in, in the, from from Newgrange from onwards from from having a Celtic area there was the possibilities of uh, if they had just gone outside let's write a second draft before we film this yeah and it's um uh, the interesting thing about it too is that um as someone who like uh I'm you know I love Irish mythology and I you know from a very young age uh Cucullin was one of my like favorite bedtime stories, if you will. I uh, absolutely love it. I see a lot in just uh, random films or television series. So there's a um, there's a King Arthur film. Is it? It's with Russell Crowe. I don't remember what it's. It might just be called Arthur, but oh, maybe that's me. too simple. Mm-hmm. But um, so the sword in that film, the Excalibur in that film, has has Oam on it. And then oh. that very bad television show currently on Netflix, Cursed, also has Oam on like a variety of items. It's on the sword. It appears a few times in the background. Like I remember seeing it in the trailer and like watching the show going, well, this is being made currently in 2020. Maybe they put some effort into it. And if they're going to go that route, they'll actually pull from like Irish mythology, even if it's just tied to location. And they didn't. <laughs> it was really sad. So... It is it is strange that the film was there and it's like he he had such a it's like he had such a vested interest in the concept of maybe spaghetti westerns maybe like Bruce Lee Jackie Chan like uh, karate films that he didn't it's like he sat down to write a film based on what he had seen and considered to be film without any understanding of how storytelling actually works <laughs> and without any like you just I I do wonder like, obviously, it still would have been a, a low-budget um, dumpster fire. <laughs> I do wonder if he had taken the time to go, oh, right, there's stories in these movies. And if he had actually reflected on, like, the fact that he was trying to make, you know, he's like, I'm making an Irish martial arts film, what elements that he could have added to it. Like, and I, I, I all for it. Like, to its, to its credit, it's very clear, if nothing else, by the end of Fatal Deviation, it is very clear that that film is a love letter to action films. Like, yes. it is a love letter to the tradition of using martial arts in storytelling. But it is also, like, it is an it is an empty basement that we have not refurbished. It's so, it's so strange. Because you're watching it, and it's just like, it's like, okay, so this is a person who clearly loves movies. And because it's like, he has all the right ingredients. And it's it's like all right 
um, I'm going to open and I'm going to let everyone know what my backstory is immediately. I'm just going to say it at a picture frame, which I mm. love. Maybe more films should open with a man <laughs> voiceovering into a, a picture frame. It's, um, it, yeah, it, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it feels like, yeah, he just gets, gets straight in there and he just talks about, you know, like, I'm, yeah. now he's a man, he's leaving, you know, and, it's, and he then he wants to know about his father. And, you yeah, know, clear thesis. Yeah. <laughs> There's no confusion there. And he's like, he's like, all right, so flashbacks are good. And I'm like, yeah, flashbacks are good. I've got to do something so that the flashbacks don't look the same as what's actually happening. Great job, Bennett. You've done that. Training sessions. Excellent. Romantic interest. Sure. Too many picnics. But you, <laughs> you, you sure did put romantic activities in this. But like none. And the tournament. What a great, what a great element of some stories. That the we put here, tournament, for, yeah, yeah tournament as the, like, you know, the tradition of having a secret underground tournament every May. Um, this, is, this, is, this is this is something that dance movies and martial arts movies have, and that yes. they need that the, the narrative hook kind of has to come, come around. Whether it's dirty dancing or whether it's it's that um, that a cheerleader movies or martial arts movies, there needs to be some sort of big tournament they're all prepared for at the end, and it's a, it's. It's his gas. Yeah, it's um. Uh, speaking of dirty dancing, Patrick Swayze, the great unifier between beat 'em up movies and dance movies, and what I like to consider the movie that's in the middle, Point Break. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> one of the best romances of our time. Let's call it what it is. It, um, <laughs> it's it's extraordinary how I mean, like I mean, yeah, Pat, Patrick Swayze found a way to you know hit like make these kind of iconic kind of yeah. Uh, touchstones in different genres between like Roadhouse, Point Break, Dirty Dancing and Ghosts. These were all films that, that have huge detractors, but arguably there's for their genres there that everything is either before these films or after these films. They're the they're the one A D of each genre. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um it's yeah, Patrick Swayze was just like, hey, is that a genre? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna do a plie right into it. <laughs> and I'm gonna just I'm going to make this so sensitive for no reason and no one's going to question it. It's, it's honestly, it's honestly great because, um, and I've, I've talked about point break a few times on the John Wick podcast because mm. you have to. Um, but it's so interesting too, because it's one of the first action movies, um, like, uh, John Wick, which it almost has no male gaze whatsoever. And mm -hmm. it almost like deliberately has a female gaze. And when you do that, it completely changes what the purpose of violence is. Yes, that's a, that's a, like, that's a great point because I think the point, point like, flips it. It opens with with Keanu in a, in a wet t-shirt rolling around in the rain. It does. He wears a crop top when they play <laughs> night beach football. <laughs> he wears a little crop top, special for all of us. And mm. it's genuinely, you know, because there's that moment, and it's it's such an iconic moment in action movies that it's it's the moment that they constantly quote and that they eventually do um, they eventually do like a callback to in Shaun of uh, no not in Shaun of the Dead in Hot Fuzz, oh, yeah. but it's that there's that moment where <laughs> like Keanu has the opportunity to take out Patrick Swayze, but he can't do it because Patrick Swayze means too much for him. And he ends up falling to his knees, laying on the ground and just firing his gun off into the air. <laughs> and it's like, it's, it's genuinely it's and and so I love that that's then like a call point for something like hot fuzz, which is like obviously very thinly veiled, like satire of just like how dumb 
toxic masculinity is and how dumb particularly cop masculinity is. Yes. And I love that the big callback there in this movie that ends up kind of being about friendship and also cults <laughs> is that moment where Keanu Reeves loves Patrick Swayze so much he has to fire his gun in the air and abandon all of his morality. <laughs> it is and then and that that ending as well it's it's funny and then you can you and you remember watching that as at whatever at the age of 13 or 14 and you know taking it so very very seriously <laughs> but yes the um it's and, and then and similarly i suppose roadhouse as well kind of has this makes this big point about how yeah. you know um how dalton uh, patrick Sway's character is a philosopher and he says you know pain don't hurt pain don't hurt Pain or hurt, and 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 it's and it, the, the the whole idea was those um nobody nobody wins a fight is another good thought the, and yeah and it's it's funny in that it, it it does send up some of the I mean some of the how a, a lot of the quotes in Roadhouse could easily be these um live laugh love kind of memes with yeah. you know um over a sunset. And, and similarly, um, wow! You just really—that's—that's that's the craft I'm getting into for the rest of this lockdown. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, live, laugh, love the roadhouse. Patrick way. Swayze, um, like Hobby Lobby decor. <laughs> and this is something that I mean that obviously that Fatal Deviation does attempt to embrace. The this the idea is of obviously that that the the role of the role of martial arts to Bennett as a character is. Kind of is religious. It's it's introspective. It's part of his self actualization. It is spiritual. He learns it from a priest. He is on a journey where he's testing himself. He is and and he does. There's a few moments when these lines I expect the unexpected isn't especially profound. It's one of the ones that's in the trailer. But the, 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 this comes back to another point where the um, the action hero has these kind of um, trash talk lines. And the trash talk lines and fatal deviation are are remarkable. Can I tell you my favorite line? Please. And it's the first time that I ever watched this movie. I walked around saying it for like probably a week after I watched the movie. I just walk around the house saying it to the point where like my friends who I was living with at the time who had not watched the film were just like, why are you doing that? What is that from? And it's because I became obsessed with saying, why don't you Boy Scouts go back into the woods? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's the most like it's it one it's an it's incredible and this is another element where i'm like oh you were so close buddy you were so close because you can see that he loves action movies and he kind of gets things that should be in them but then Mm -hmm. he doesn't do anything with it he shows up this lady is getting you know this nice woman's getting cat cold but by a man's lackeys which number one what an incredible concept (laughs) the idea (laughs) that like a big tough gangster in a city has dudes to just go hey guys i'm gonna need two of you to uh you know go take care of that drug deal one of you go do something else like morally unsavory but then you two i'm gonna need you guys to go out and flirt with my girlfriend for me today (laughs) present these flowers to her (laughs) incredible please i'm very busy but but my girlfriend's important to me can you please go flirt with her for me for my car Drive up in a white beamer with yeah. these gas station flowers. <laughs> Don't pick her up from work. Don't give her a ride anywhere. What I want you to do is to just accost her and please offer her these flowers and let her know I would like to see her tomorrow. <laughs> and then Incredible. And, and yeah, poor old Nicola has these, I mean, 
these several lines. She's walking down. She's saying, you know, like, oh, like, leave me alone, or you, you don't be a lackey for someone else. And it was just like this line. Then the lads are hassling her, and then Bennett just happens to be behind, and he just appears. For me, this, and then yes, this great line. Why don't you boys guys go play with the woods? <laughs> boys guys go back into the woods, and then he does the he does he does the most unnecessary flip over that car. <laughs> Everyone stops so that he can finish doing that flip. And mm. I wish, like, honestly, this is a problem in all action movies. So you can't even really say anything about Fatal Deviation. Like, oh, it was low budget. Some guy just made it. But just that, that woman's, you know, she's a plank of wood. She's got nothing else going on. She's just there to be a love interest, I guess. And yes. um, it, 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 for it, it, me... It fails like, have, the backdrop test so hard. Yeah, have the reason that she loves him be that sweet flip over the car. <laughs> Do you know, give her something to work with. That would have been my acting choice. If I had been handed that script, I'd have been like, oh, I don't have a lot to work with. She's going to be in it for the sweet flips. <laughs> and then, because I think, yeah, he, he, there's, before that, in this in, San, in Londis, Londis is, is, is a, is a, is a um, shop chain in Ireland and these mm. two these two goons are basically causing trouble there they're throwing eggs they're kind of drinking oh. drinking milk and from straight from the garden and putting them back and then they're about to knock over her arrangement of kitchen rolls and she's oh please don't knock out but just building those and then Bennett comes along and he throws one of the lads through the butt pile of kitchen rolls which he spent all morning filling up it is so convenient that he um, is always there mm-hmm. right when a fight needs to happen. And it's, and, and then, you know what, the thing that I love about Bennett is that he goes, well, now that I've had that fight, I may as well just go home. <laughs> he never, he doesn't finish his shopping. They go to that pub. He doesn't actually need anything at the pub. He just, which also, can I say, um, at the, how, how much, how much protection did the local Keeley's lounge need? <laughs> Why were there two bouncers outside of Keeley's lounge? And it cuts to the inside, and it doesn't even there doesn't even seem to be any like secret criminal activity. The main the main bad guy isn't even there, nor is his father. He just he just needs to fight those men to go in for what reason? The all all fifteen people who live in that town and are in that movie are all in there just enjoying their dinner. <laughs> Why? It's it's a strange thing, and it, it's daytime as well. You generally find that the bouncers are there for the, kind of the nighttime crowd, or and there the, wasn't even a queue in or anything like that. And it's yeah, the, the, <laughs> but like it's it's very funny that yeah he, he goes in there, and at this point yeah he's um oh what I, what I was about to say there, or just after you mentioned about like Nicholas character and how much imagine how much a better movie it would have been if she was the narrator and not him. Yes, Terminator Two style. Oh. There's also too. Um, there are just some strange choices where, like, obviously, um, but <laughs> one in particular. So there's a moment where uh, it's her, the main lady. I don't know anyone's name, and I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I'm so bad at names. Um, so it's the main woman, the love interest, and then there are two other women, and they're at the ATM for some reason. The three of them together. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and. And they see him cross the street or get out of a car or something. And one of them goes, oh, don't you know about his father? And the other woman goes, no. But then they walk away together. And I'm like, no, that was your moment to do exposition. That's where it was. You almost wrote it. You almost did it. (laughs) 
you could have had that moment of exposition and then that nice woman that you have a love interest with could have like had a reaction and it just doesn't why was that line even in there you were so close you were so close this was the, the dramatic tension you get from different different characters having different amounts of information at different times and how and how that affects how they react with each other that was a, a great chance to to, to to put it in like at one point i think bennett says to nicola you know that he understands what it's like to be picked on to be bullied and you just get to you get a moment to think this will be a a fine opportunity to you know make a comment on the on the industrial school system that maybe that he, yeah. he had come come through and or that you know there was a little opportunity to do something like that but uh, again not run with it because on one level yes it's all about the fights the big fight scenes but at the same time you know these um <laughs> like he came so close so often to you know this yeah. is something that would have been like eight times better or it may not have been as interesting we, we, you and I may not be talking about if he That's actually true, did yeah. do, do, do three drafts of it and got someone else to do some of the direction so that he actually just focused on his acting and martial arts work. Chances are then maybe you would have had, had a pretty good forgettable film. But now what you actually do have is an incredible insight into what first drafts are like. This is something that two writers <laughs> like you and I can actually really talk about. Yes. There was a point there when I was in DCU that I was going to this midnight screening of The Room in the Sugar Club on a monthly basis, I'd say. And that's the Tommy Wiseau film, of course, with the Oh Hi Mark line it. And I've always leaned towards those films, I think, the ones that are so horrifically bad, but you can't help but enjoy them. So I've no memory, really, of coming across Fatal Deviation for the first time. I can't remember how I came across it for the first time. Maybe it just comes to you naturally if you're that way inclined. But I remember seeing it and just thinking, like, I have to, I have to spread the good word. Gradually tried to convince my circle of friends to, to watch this. And it eventually culminated in us going to the computer lab in DCU, the one that we had. So we, got, we all got our bag of cans in and we went in and we just started watching it and enjoying it. And I can't remember why, but there was a frisbee going around the computer room and it was being kind of thrown around every now and then. And at one stage I was watching, I think it was the car crash scene. And there is that kind of bit of trivia that apparently that crash wasn't planned. As far as I'm aware, it was just a complete accident. So I was watching that anyway, not paying attention to anything else. And then the frisbee came towards my head. So instinctively I ducked, but I was sitting at a desk and I had my can just below me. So what happened was I ducked and avoid the frisbee, but accidentally head-butted, or more accurately nose-butted, the can, which had the seal poke, poking up. And so that went into my nose, and that kind of pretty much gave me a massive nosebleed. And I had to run to out of the lab into the toilets there, leaving a trail of blood behind me. So yeah, by the time I came back, I was, I mean, I, I, I think we were wearing tank tops at the time as well, to really get into the summer mood. And I came back covered in blood, so, I don't know, you watch Fatal Deviation and you need, to be, you need to prepare yourself to possibly become Fatal Deviation yourself. Where's my drink? It's coming, it's coming. I, can I, I, so I love the villains in this film. I oh, love yes. Them. I love them so much. They make no sense. <laughs> I, I'm very adhered to them, though, because he has his girlfriend lackeys, which are 
um, in my opinion, really underutilized in every other film I've ever seen. And I would argue probably by real gangsters. I don't know. Um, but my maybe my favorite line in the entire movie, although the Boy Scout one is so good, <laughs> is when the, uh, when the son, the junior bad guy, yes. specifically says, hey, go get a couple of guys on motorbikes. <laughs> specifically, I need them to be on motorbikes. maybe or just like a no in the <laughs> it's good. It's good. It goes really quick go get a couple of guys on motorbikes but you, but you know why mary's like those two are definitely having a picnic in the park now it's like, the only thing that's motor- gonna get there listen all right they have a strict no driving policy at that park and i will not be breaking that rule am i a criminal yes but i respect the parks because if Mikey, if Mikey at that point had done a kind of a Paw Patrol on it and said, listen, Bennett's in the park right now, Nicola's with him, that there's three entrances from it. If you block off this entrance, he's going to have to, if you block off these two entrances, he's going to have to go here. That's where you get him with the motorbikes. It's like, got to be motorbikes. <laughs> it's got to be motorbikes. Yeah. Or I have another guy in a speedboat coming along the side. But it's, um, but this is the thing. I mean, I obviously, I'd say, I'd say possibly um, James Bennett wrote the motorbike f- scene first. Like it's actually for a oh. for a movie that appears to be made on a camcorder. A lot of um, <laughs> an awful lot of actual attention and choreography went into this. And you know, you have to argue this is the this is this is the least the least slagable part of the film is the is that particular fight scene is actually reasonably well kind of plot, plot, um, well blocked and presented. I will I will say though that there is something something does feel deeply menacing about being surrounded by men on on Suzuki dirt bikes. Yes. I think that's I'm actually, like it's very silly, but if that actually happened to me at a park, I'd be deeply uncomfortable. <laughs> Can we um this is an important to maybe like the iconography of action in general but i do want to talk about the picnic one of oh, them yes. one of the many picnics there is this broke me the first time i saw it and i um shoved it down and when i was rewatching it last week it broke me again the first time they go and have a very big romantic picnic as you do yeah they have an empty bottle of wine two unused plastic cups i'm <laughs> like 17 oranges <laughs> spread out all over the blanket. It's not even like, well, they brought a bag of oranges and maybe they've had a few, but they haven't eaten all of them. Those, better than any action scene in that film, those oranges are blocked so specifically. The choreography of those picnic blanket oranges haunted me. And then on top of that, I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm an American and I was a 90s baby, so maybe... Um, <laughs> Was there like a deep shortage of strawberries in Ireland in the 90s? <laughs> because they bring one. They brought one, one strawberry. <laughs> and it sits in its own little pot. And she feeds him the strawberry. But because there's only one, then she also needs a piece of it. So she can't even, it's not even like a full sexy, ah, I'm going to visit strawberry. And she's like, all right, now I need my bite though, because it's the only strawberry we have. Hmm. It's just this and the 17 oranges. 
Oh my god! <laughs> this is a, in the god in the Godfather movies. The, the, when an orange, when you see an orange on screen, it means someone's about to die. Maybe I guess, yeah. he meant seventeen people are about like, to get I kicked. Make it, I want to make it very clear to you: I'm going to kill every person in this town before the movie is over with. Who are you people? The question is, who are you? What are you talking about? I know my past. Do you know yours? Come on, Nicola, we're leaving. This guy's crazy. At one point, Nicola is at a at the ATM. And then she overhears two women talking about, uh, about, about James Pest. Is that old Bennett's uh, son? Oh, would you hear it? And then <laughs> this, 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 like, we're teased with the possibility of a little bit of background, a little bit of exposition. And instead, the movie bravely says, no. <laughs> and said, no, what's going to happen here is for some reason, he's going to, he's going to beat up two bouncers outside a, um, <laughs> outside a, a yeah, a high street pub in the middle of the day. We don't. We have no idea why they're protecting it. He it goes is in. one p.m. and I need at least two bouncers here in their best khakis for some reason. It's carvery time. Like <laughs> <laughs> you could say that. I mean, possibly maybe Nicola would have been better off with Mikey, and Benna just comes along and wrecks things. He's an eligible yeah. partner. We don't even know. Like, I mean, does is he gonna? What's his intentions with Nicola after, you know, like they don't seem to have yeah. much in common. Are they going to stay together after he's disposed of uh, a, an eligible partner? Yeah. Every time they go on a date, something horrifying happens. Yeah, he, he's, he brings trouble around with him. He's a he's a trouble man. She's, she clearly doesn't want anyone. To, she, I think she's got a lot of walls up. You know, he tries mm. to ask about her and she gives that. Oh, you know, yeah. will, will they ever really know one another? Hard to say. But yeah, there's a distinct lack of... There's, I, I'll say on the whole, there's just a lack of, of intimacy in the film. And for it being an action film, which is the genre of people who don't need... To, who don't know that they need to feel feelings, feeling feelings. There's really not a whole lot of intimacy here. Even with... Um, even with the kind of like flashbacks to learning from his dad and things like that. Again, it's the thing of, of I wish that he would have thought more about what he actually wanted to do because that I think is just mimicry of, uh, again, Jean-Claude Van Damme's kickboxer mm-hmm. film. The flashbacks are almost identical in structure to what you get in those. Um, so it removes any sort of like vulnerability from any of the characters. And so really it's, He's getting attacked by the most people, but you know, Bennett's our protagonist and we don't we don't see a lot of vulnerability or insecurity from him. Even his training, he doesn't seem to fail or learn anything. This is the thing, and what, what this was the point I wanted, I wanted to make earlier was that he doesn't improve from the monk teaching to taking him aside to, you know, teach the craft. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be any better or different a fighter. It's not a case where, you know, he's um you know, where we think though in the early scenes he's got a good left hook but he's not good at blocking himself or that you know he rushes much into fighting where he should actually you know you know learn to to wait like a wait like a rabbit before you attack like an eagle or you know that's shite like there's no there's no moment even like like in the karate kid when he uses the crane move where we realize oh he's learned something here and no and that's probably something they again a second draft would have would have picked up on part of why i think I think there's a, a real missed opportunity and not just getting a weapon involved. Like mm. just 
action movies get to do this all the time. We do it with every other kind of mythology. I need I need films to just start doing it with Irish mythology. Just tell me that's Kukul and Spear. I'll believe you. Mm-hmm. I'll be happy to believe you. I don't need you to tell me why. Just tell me it is, and he has to be worthy of it. And I'll be so excited to see it. Or I even thought about, I don't know if you're familiar with The Crow. Oh, yes. But The Crow, of course, based on graphic novels, it's become both a cult action film and sort of a cult, like, goth romance film. Mm -hmm. And they did a really great job. And, of course, a lot of this comes from you know, unfortunately, the death of Brandon Lee and how they had to film around it. But there are so many sequences in The Crow that are giving us emotional exposition. And they're doing it by utilizing the fact that he can literally see through the eyes of a crow. Mm. But just giving it that spin, cutting to moments where Brandon Lee is emoting, pairing it with the right musical cue, and showing us that it's taxing and draining for him to tap into that animal to like see the past or see where someone is, it grounds it so much and makes it, it, it establishes its own mythology just by showing us that it took something mm-hmm. from Eric Draven to use the crow. And that even when he's using the crow, seeing the past or seeing the future is tasks that he has to accomplish or trauma that he has to deal with and the weight's very heavy, and they do that without a lot of dialogue or additional fight sequences or anything like that. And if, I mm-hmm. think they're huge opportunity. It would have grounded sort of the mythology of the film and the stakes of the tournament if they'd have even, like you said, like used traditional spirituality. That's actually a really good point. And uh, I suppose it's a really good reference to something that they could have done. They could have found, there could have been an archaeological dig in Meath where there was a mm-hmm. an, an axe head, the axe of Google or something like that. But yeah. to, to use it is to actually force you to admit a truth about yourself or something. Yeah. But yeah, we can only, we can only speculate. But what we can say is that I guess um, for... I think writers will always be fascinated with fatal deviation. I think people who, um, people with a sense of shock, I think this as it's a strange text intentionally or unintentionally, it fascinates, delights and raises questions. Yes. (laughs) The funny thing is if he had made some of the improvements that you and I might suggest, it might just be a fairly good film that no one would remember in 30 years time, but here we are talking about it. Yeah. True. Very true. Good stuff. Myra Dama, where can people find your podcast? Um, my podcast is called Be Seeing You, a John Wick podcast, because there are 900 songs called Be Seeing You, if you search for <laughs> it. Um, that's on Spotify and Podbean. I am Lost Wolfling um, on Twitter, on Twitch, and also on Kofi, where I post some of my fiction as well, if people are interested in that. Great stuff. Myra Dama, thank you so much again. And so until yeah, the next time, it is a slum from me. Slim. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Motherfuck Lore. We're going to be back in the autumn with a new season, but if you don't want to miss out on the Motherfuck Lore fun and learning, we'll be releasing Patreon-only content throughout the summer. Thanks to Brian for the production. Thanks to Kirsten Scheel for doing the artwork. Thanks to all the team at Headstuff for keeping the show alive. If you want to contact the show, send us a message, a voice message on our WhatsApp number. That's in the show notes. Until the next time, slung a foal. 
So if anyone hasn't watched it yet, please, please, please take the time out to watch it. It's only like 80 minutes or 90 minutes or something. And uh, it's all on YouTube. It is, honest to God, the funniest hour and a half you will have this week. But yeah, I'm so glad that I was able to share all my love with Fatal Deviation here. Gurmila Mai Gavarish is up. Cash Farm, Levain Shah, Agus Dissilum, Gamay Baltanya, Gauntog of. Stay safe, everyone. Enjoy Baltanya. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. See ya. Bye. Bye.